Welcome once again to another episode of Horrorversary. I know, I'm just as jazzed as you guys are that we've got all these episodes coming out at a clip. It's it's working out to our benefit, even if the world is slowly being destroyed and crumbling all around us. But hopefully by the time this episode, you know, comes out, things will, will be on the up and up. We're, we've been recording it far in advance. I've been doing probably about four to five episodes a week, so we've got... Uh, a, a steady stream of episodes that are coming out. And this is a film this week that we're talking about that I'm I'm very excited about. I wanted to see for years. It's kind of blipped all over the place. I finally got it out of the way, and I wanted to have a very special guest on. But we, before we get to that, if this is the first time that you're listening to this podcast, because you saw this, this name being mentioned in the title, that this podcast can be explained very easily. This is a podcast that celebrates horror movies that are celebrating anniversaries. Now, we don't go for, you know, trying to nickel and dime you by being like, hey, you're 17, you're 47. No, no, no. We're sticking just with the big milestones that everybody really appreciates. The 10s, the 20s, 30s, 40s, going as far back as you can. Because at any point in film history, there's a horror movie that deserves to be, you know, watched again. Maybe sometimes they're films that you've definitely heard of and you know. When people say The Thing, you're like, yes, that's a film that everybody knows. That's a film that everybody loves. Let's celebrate that anniversary. Or it might be, you know, a small film that only a handful of people have seen. But that doesn't mean that it's not worthy uh, of, you know, being seen again. So that's what we like to do here. Now... To get the format out right away, it's, again, easy. That's the key with this. We like to keep this easy and breezy, but not CoverGirl, unless, you know, the CoverGirl happens to be Linnea Quigley or one of the various icons when it comes to the horror genre. But what we do is we always have on a special guest. Sometimes there's somebody who writes about movies. Sometimes there's somebody who does a podcast about movies. Sometimes there's somebody who actually has worked on movies themselves. We like taking people from all different backgrounds who love horror movies. We bring them on the show. They choose the film that we're talking about. And then I ask them five questions that every single guest gets to get to the bottom of what it is that makes this movie really special. Now, like I said before, this week is special because we're doing Fade to Black. Fade to Black, if you're not aware, is a film that's kind of hard to come by. It was put out on DVD in two different formats, both in a single disc and then a second disc where uh, I believe that the second film that was on the double feature was Hell Knight because they shared the same producer. But... It went out of print very quickly, and about a year, year and a half ago, it randomly wound up on Amazon Prime for free if you were a Prime member, and everyone freaked out when it popped up there, but just as quickly as it was there, it disappeared like a couple of weeks later. You've had that happen with several movies over the last couple of years with things like Fright Night Part 2 popped up for a short period of time and then disappeared, and Fade to Black, if you go onto eBay right now, you can possibly find one that's in like the 50 60 range maybe you'll be really lucky and find one for 45 dollars. but it's not exactly at the price point that you want for rather bare bones dvd but people have been searching for this movie for a while and i finally got to see it because of our guests that we have on today but when you're talking about fade to black you have to talk about people who are film nerds and not necessarily in a bad way but it's kind of at the core of this film and of course that's Okay, this person is very impatient. I understand. I was rambling on for a while, but uh, 
we will get into why this person was very anxious to talk about this film. But the guest today is somebody that we've had on in another capacity. They are part of the podcast, both Nerds of Nostalgia and Nightmare Junkhead. But this man wears many hats. And if you've ever been to an event in Kansas City, you've probably seen him running around behind the scenes. So we have to give on a, a giant, exuberant welcome to Horrorversary, Mr. Greg Dedrick. How are you doing, Greg? I, uh, I'm i here for the all-night horathon. Uh, I'm sorry, I was under not under the pretense of a podcast, my friend. So uh-huh. right away, we have some words. <laughs> uh, w- one of the greatest things that I can say about Greg, which fr- first of all, Greg is somebody who doesn't always like everyone showering him with praise, even though he does definitely deserve it. But if you talked to or did an interview with the majority of the people who are working at the Panic Film Fest in Kansas City this year, you would hear people constantly mention Greg. And that's because Greg not only was doing, you know, Q&As with people, was recording podcasts, was interviewing people, but then he was usually running around trying to make sure that the live podcasts that were going on were were syncing up and setting and everything. So. If you ran into any of the people who did any of the podcasts there and you were talking about something there, they were like, oh, yeah, you know, everything's been great. You know, you've got great people like Tim and Adam who put on the event and then you've got Greg. And so, like, everyone was talking about how great uh, a job Greg was doing. Well, I think Greg almost died by the end of it from sheer exhaustion. (laughs) Yeah, honestly, the worst part was we were so prepared for everything but of course, no matter how much you prepare, something always goes wrong or, you know, what? something new is introduced. And that's exactly what happened. That's why I was running around so much is something would come up and I'm like, oh, no. So I was afraid, number one, that would make us look bad professionally. But at the same time, though, I'm hoping they go, well, at least these people are, you know, they're they're uh, enthusiastic about what they do. But no, man, it would panic film fest this last year was we always say that's where you make memories and man, I had so memory, many memories made this year. It was ridiculous. So yeah, thanks to everyone that came out and it's so scary. The fact that that was two months ago, man, doesn't it feel like a lifetime ago? Yeah. It was like two, two and a, it was a two and a half, three months. I we're in April now and that was the end <laughs> of January. How do we do math? Two and a half months. Is that what we'd say? I, I would say so. Well, the weirdest part is um, the fact that our our episode tomorrow, our Nightmare Junkhead episode, is the one that you actually co-hosted where we did our entire Panic Fest recap. And it was sad to listen back to because it was recorded like probably the first week of February when yeah. none of this had happened. And we're just talking about, oh, Terra Tuesday and all these events that are coming up. And it was just kind of disheartening. To go back in here <laughs> at the same time, though, it was reaffirming because, as you know, it's going to come back, you know, yeah. life will find a way. So, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm excited. But one of the reasons why I want to have Greg on here is because, he, like I said, he does many, many duties. But here in Kansas City, not only does he have the two podcasts, like I mentioned, Nerds of Nostalgia and Nightmare Junkin, um, but he also is a big host at both the Alamo Draft House and Screenland Armor. And he was somebody who kind of helped me get my foot in the door several years ago when it came um, to the Alamo Draft House. And he is, when you want a sign of somebody who knows what they're doing, wants to make sure that every single person is having a good time as a host, Greg is probably one of the finest examples of that. And so because we're at a point where theaters are sadly shut down, I wanted to have him come on and, and be able to talk to, um, about a movie, a movie that I know is is near and dear to him, 
And it was fun getting to see this one because while everyone's using Zoom and everything, uh, Greg was able to find a way to use his DVD and share the screen on Skype so that we were able to to watch the film together while also enacting social distance. We are horror educators and we're responsible for educators damn it uh it was actually it's i much prefer you know to be in a theater with everyone we always talk the communal experience or if you know the home theater with people around you but we live in such a crazy technological marvel of an age now that that happened and it, you know it was kind of a cool viewing given the circumstances now the the first question that we ask everybody that I know you're familiar with is when was the first time or do you remember the first time that you saw Fade to Black? Absolutely. In fact, I will come out and admit it. Uh this isn't a film because it is it's celebrating 40 years of terror, uh but this isn't a film that I rewatched a lot. In fact, I only recently came across Fade to Black and any yeah, no, and and it was a weird journey actually because anyone that knows the show knows I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, so much so that I've got like a regular weekly rotation and my, my Friday rotation, uh, right after work, I get home, uh, get Lola, I take her for a walk and I listen to the dulcet sounds of the shockwaves podcast. And I know that's one you've started listening to, correct? Correct. Yeah. I've been listening to it for, I think the last six months or so, just, just getting into it. I know I'm a late comer to it. I, man, I have been, I've been listening to him for a very long time, but I just love the chemistry <laughs> of the crew. Um, but they always give recommendations and it was Dr. Rebecca McKendry that constantly talked about this quirky little film from 1980 called fade to black. And she's one of those people, everyone on that show, when they make a recommendation, it's worth your while to go seek it out. But especially Dr. McKendry, we've kind of got similar taste. Um, but it's always been in the back of my mind. And like you said, it's hard to find. And I wasn't in the place where I could spend 50 to $60 on a DVD at that point. So I just let it, I let it fade to black quite literally. (laughs) And uh, I then picked up a trailer compilation, Blu-ray called, um, uh, trailer trauma five eighties horror thon. And it was, um, all these trailers from 1980 to 1989. And it's a fantastic collection, but in the year of 1980, right before Friday the 13th, I see the trailer for fade to black. And man, it sold me on this film though. I was like, I need to seek this out any way possible. And it just so happened that on YouTube of all places, fade to black was on there. And I'll be the first to admit, I don't want to watch a film the first time through something like that. I want the most real experience. But at that point I was desperate. Um, so I sat down and I watched it and (laughs) I mean, and again, for any of you that haven't seen the film, it's quirky it's kind of earnest. Uh, it's silly. It's saccharine, uh, somewhat sinister. It's just a really off film and one that I, again, I cannot wait to talk a little more about, but to even argue, is it a horror movie? Uh, this is one of those films potentially that someone's going to go, maybe uh, it's more of a thriller, but man, from the first time I saw it to, and I I was actually able to only spend $15 on the DVD that we watched. (laughs) So thankfully I hit the market at the right time. Uh, but I but I picked it up on physical media, and that's how you were able to watch it for the first time, which I'm glad my first time went from YouTube to a first time with you through this weird, again, internet thing. So I, I guess um, harmo- harmonious, I guess. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. I'll be fine with that. Um, 
it, it was an interesting like I'd heard about it for years and it's always a film that comes up on on many uh, underrated and underseen films when you get those threads going mm-hmm. on on Twitter or various social media places that you'll have lots of people who are talking about oh fade to black's one that you you have to see and I, I remember the fervor there was just a couple of years ago when it popped back up on on prime and it must have been you know around YouTube at the same time that that everyone's like oh my god it's on prime you have to see it you have to see it and so everyone was just clamoring and then as quickly as it came it, it went so I don't know how um how legal the copy was but <laughs> at, at the same time it was there for a short period of time and the, the movie has enough of a following that the fact that it was on someplace like prime was you know cause for for lots of excitement so getting to see it um was really interesting i think because the movie played out differently than i thought it was going to but i i like the way that it did because it's it's unique in its approach in the way that that it tackles the subject matter Absolutely. Um, and that's one of the things I'm curious then, did the hype hurt the film? Because like you said, a lot of, a lot of people and especially people whose opinions we go, yeah, I can kind of vibe with that. A lot of them said it's a great film. So uh, not to spoil anything, but, um, did it live up to the hype? I think for the most part it did. Um, I think this is a perfect point to get into the second question so we can get more into the nitty gritty. Now, how this works for the second question, I have started rephrasing it. Uh, because there were a couple individuals who I absolutely love and adore and are fantastic people, and they got a little too excited and did get into so- uh, spoiler space when I asked this question, so I'm going to be very um, careful with the wording I use. But after I ask this question, Greg and I are going to take a pause, and we're going to give you a chance, if you haven't seen this movie, to pause the movie and, and go see it, if you have the means to do so, of course. Um, after we come back from that very short pause, we are going to dive deep into the movie because the only way that you can really get to the bottom of what makes these movies special, why you think they have such a lineage that they do, is by getting into spoiler territory. So that's your heads up. But the second question that we ask everybody is for the uninitiated and as few words possible, describe the synopsis of the movie. Not a problem. <clears throat> Excuse me now. A socially awkward movie nerd scoots around Hollywood while his dream-on-esque fantasies bleed into reality. How's that for succinct? That works. That works. That works. It's, it's almost like you've done something like this before. <laughs> we'll get into that, but yeah, I believe <laughs> is seen when you watch this movie. Oh my yes. lord, have mercy. Now, we're going to take the moment to pause right here. And there, literally, I tried to time it out for about a second, a second of a pause. I don't even press pause on anything because I want to give you enough time to pause and then we can jump into it. Now, you mentioned scene. So let's let's tackle that for a second, because it's not just you. There's been a couple different people who've made that comment about this. This movie is what exactly do you mean when you say that that fade to black sees you well the first time i watched it i'm enjoying the film and i'm kind of identifying with eric benford you know, initially as i think a lot of us did as the awkward movie nerds and i'm like well i'm i'm awkward uh i enjoy movies oh, i'd be kind of cool to work in a film distribution center oh he also rides around on a scooter i <laughs> also ride around on a scooter so i'm i'm like watching this film thinking am i looking into a mirror right now Am I in some weird like Black Mirror episode, you know, via podcast through YouTube or something? Because it was just so alarming 
I was like, man, I think I, they owe me likeness rights or something. Like it was just be, and then the fact, of course it goes where it goes and we can definitely discuss whether or not this is a, a good, honest portrayal of the movie nerd. Uh, but this film felt oddly autobiographical for quite a while. <laughs> Uh, until you know he broke until he broke through the Halloween one sheet, which you know I would never do. And I think that's the interesting thing about the movie is that it does paint this picture of somebody who is, um, I, I mean, obsessed. Almost doesn't even feel like the right word. Like it's it's uh, or even subsumed or or something <laughs> like that. It feels like it's it's too light a word because he is he's enveloped. That's what I'll say. He's enveloped by film. It, it seeps his every single pore. And while there's plenty of people who are like that in the world, it, it's kind of one of those um, when people think of what the ver- worst version of like a movie nerd or like the <laughs> worst version of a gamer is like that's the portrayal that they have with Eric Bidford. There's plenty of stuff that's that's true. But then it's also like his clothes are, you know, for the most part. Uh, the same type of outfits. Like he might have nine outfits, but I don't know if they've ever been washed. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure if he takes a shower. His uh, Vespa is in like the most disrepair that he should probably just have the Vespa taken away from him because of the state that he's let it get into. Um, but he's it, and then his attitude is that he's the character that you see from the beginning and you're initially supposed to be on his side, but he isn't exactly the most likable person. Not at all. And that's a credit to Dennis Christopher's performance, ultimately. And you talk about the style in there. I actually think Eric Benford is very kind of a, a style icon class, uh, not necessarily uh, on the um, Annie Hall style, but he was rocking the, the sweater vest with the buttons. Uh, we, we even were kind of joking about that one jacket he had that had that notable rip in it. But he was consistent with it. But no, I think it speaks to Dennis Christopher's performance. He's He's weird in this movie. Well, what's interesting about that, that you bring up uh, what he's wearing is that uh, another conversation that I had with somebody, um, a friend who saw that I had seen the movie, they were talking about, well, isn't it interesting that every outfit that he has is based on a character from a movie? And what I thought was his regular outfit, because like, I mean, when he's going to the funeral, you know, he's definitely dressed um, like the gangster mm-hmm. from uh, the the movie that he's watching when uh, the aunt has her accident. Um, <laughs> white and heat. Then of, yes. And white heat. And then of course he's, he's dressed like Hopalong Cassidy later. Uh, but somebody said that his outfit was uh, reminiscent or copied like his basic one off of uh, Anthony Perkins and psycho. Ah, I'll have to go back and take a look at that then. I, I, I'll have to take a look at that too. Cause like at first I was like, when I heard that connection, I was like, Ooh, I want to take a look at that. But I also want to take a look at the, the outfit that the guy's wearing in peeping Tom. That would make sense. That would make sense. Well, in it ultimately, because this is kind of a love letter to film for the most part, um, it also serves as kind of a cautionary tale, ultimately about why you shouldn't let yourself be completely enveloped by film. You know, you it's maybe all about finding a balance. Um, but question, and here, I mean, this is, is this a horror film for you? Uh, I, 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 I think, I think we, it might not be what most people think of as a horror movie, but I mean, we have to remember this is, this is coming out in 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you and I have discussed, or as I've mentioned for other episodes on here, or when hosting Terror Tuesdays for films like this is that anytime that you're looking at the beginning 
of a, a decade. There's two things that, that definitely stand out. One, you're kind of seeing the last breath of air of the films that were coming out, you know, uh, for that kind of defined the previous decade. And then you're getting films that are coming out that are pushing the envelope into what becomes, uh, you know, that, that starting force for that next decade. And so this film definitely feels like it's still mired in, in like the late 70s uh, feeling while also starting to to seep into the 80s vibe that you get into lots of um, horror movies, which is that anything could be a horror movie. And while that's more, you know, that's definitely true of any decade, when you look at it, it, it might not scream, oh, a typical horror movie. You have to remember all the different types of horror movies that were coming out at the time. So I definitely think that it fits into a weird slasher type movie. Mm-hmm. Well, because played... oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was I was going to say because at the eighties you have them like they're not the slashers aren't exactly what um uh they, they fully become because I mean you've had Halloween you know just a couple of years before as we have the poster that's in this movie um you have what's it called um Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, which comes out, you know, 1980 as well, which is definitely is starting to get to that tone, but it doesn't have all those hallmarks that become the things that everybody's ripping off. So the it kind of feels like the slasher genre can be anything at the time, as long as you have certain elements of it, it kind of fits in that. And so I think it does have elements of of the thriller aspect as well as a slasher aspect. Yeah, and it's it, it plays like a 70s character piece. But then you add in those elements of, like you said, the slasher motif and the film motif. And I already mentioned the Dream On reference. And I, I didn't even think about it. Technically, Fade to Black pre, uh, preceded uh, Dream On. So I wonder if Dream On took those you know, aspects from Fade to Black. And if, if there are any of, our, of your listeners that don't know what we're talking about, Dream On was this uh, sitcom on HBO. Came out in the mid to late 80s. Uh, and it was built around a book editor played by Brian Benben, who some of your more astute listeners will recognize in the Craig R. Baxley masterpiece, I Come in Peace. Uh, oh, they'll leave in pieces. <laughs> but they are not assholes. Uh, but he plays this like cr- comically oversexed book editor, and it's just this wacky sitcom. Uh, Wendy Malick is in it. But it was built around the fact that this kid was raised on television. So whenever he would encounter a, some sort of scenario it would immediately cut to a clip of a movie or a television show that had kind of context to the situation he was in. And that was what his kind of go-to was. That was what his brain worked like. So it was all about being raised on this. And, and it was always, it always cracked me up. And then with fade to black, they have the exact same thing. The whole motif when he gets, I don't know, escalated or pushed his, you immediately cut to a, a like a James Cagney film or it just it, it just what it's almost like his comfort place, but it's also kind of what's triggering him as well. Uh, but I will say this: if this were to be remade today, could you see like a twenty four doing a remake on this? I can see that in a way. I mean, I, the thing that we were talking about when we watched the movie, and we'll get to the third question in just a second, was that we think, or I mean, I'm not sure if it's true. Uh, but it would seem like the thing that was holding this movie back from being distributed widely is whatever the rights might be for some of the films that they're showing in there. Because it seems like if they were from all different studios, and that'd be kind of difficult to get these long passages, and depending upon what you know it costs to be able to sh- use different footage 
in the film that that could have easily hold them back since the company that originally put it out was a, a smaller company. Absolutely. And, and to be honest, though, and what I again, why I kind of identified with Benford is a lot of us out there can communicate via movie quotes, movie references. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how we kind of find our people for the. I know that's immediately why you and I hit it off so well is, you know, you would throw out some random reference and I would pick it up or, you know, I do vice versa. And we're just like, oh, we speak the same language. So. I like that aspect of it, but again, it's what happens when it's perverted or it's taken to you know, the next level because it made me feel guilty a little like, well, I, I, I have those kind of references in the moment. Again, litmus test movies that, you know, oh, you know that movie? Well, I think we can definitely be friends. Like I said, that that's what I identified with so much. I just was feeling bad. Then I'm like, oh, dude, you just need to be a little bit more, you know, non-socially awkward and not so much a creeper and, oh, Benford, you're killing me here. You, you you need to be more of a, a an average Joe than a Travis Bickle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Again, finding the balance, you know, just <laughs> well, you can be a little, you know, Travis here and a little ordinary guy there. Now, because Binford, of course, is somebody who lives his life through moments. The third question, of course, is, is there a signature moment or scene that sticks with you from this film? So my I'm going to cheat a little on this one. But for me, the thing that I just really enjoy is all the dream on reference scenes. Every time that he gets into a situation and he immediately references a movie. Uh, The one that I really enjoy is when he first meets uh, who he thinks ultimately is Marilyn Monroe, uh, (laughs) which we'll get into that as well, which is so crazy. Uh, But he starts talking about, oh, do you remember the movie? And he's talking to her like she's Marilyn Monroe that Hugh and such and such were watching in this particular film. And she's like... I don't remember. And it's funny because then he starts acting out. He's like, he's doing this weird squiddly diddly hand motion. And her friend is increasingly getting frustrated. And ultimately, he starts getting frustrated with all of them for not knowing that it was the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. And it's so funny because then you're just like, dude, you. it seems like your quirkiness is initially kind of working on her. But then his his the the film guy gets involved and escalated and triggered, and he becomes the creature from the Black Lagoon, basically. But um, I think any of the scenes when he dresses up, ultimately, are kind of standouts. Uh, Eric Binford, master of disguise, as <laughs> uh, oh, except for except for he's also uh, technically looks like as as we pointed out while watching the movie, Eric Binford, raincoat wearing pimp at the <laughs> at the funeral. Yeah. You know what? Again, 1980s, uh, we we had the Martin Scorsese aesthetic there, so I'm not surprised with that. Um, I think my favorite one is the Count Dracula scene, Mm -hmm. ultimately because it's kind of a three part. Uh, The first part is he he dresses in and it's basically the Bela Lugosi Dracula. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, well, that's the picture that he's he's working off of, I yes. believe, is a, is a still shot from it. And that wonderful shot where he's kind of half painted and he t- turns to the camera. Great, great work in that. Um, but ultimately, he goes to a an all-night horror movie marathon of which other mm-hmm. people dressed up. So, I'm, again, I'm like, oh, I, I, I like to do things like that. Okay, Benford, I got gotcha. you. And then, though, unfortunately, it takes a really, really weird turn. To Creepsville. Total Creepsville. What? It's like, oh, no, Eric, you're killing me again. But he goes to the Marilyn Monroe's house and we get a recreation of what we think is going to be the psycho shower scene. Yeah. 
And technically it is, but then instead of the stabbing with a knife, he comes out with this fountain pen. Like something he would have probably had to like pick up at an antique store. She freaks out. He's like, I just wanted your autograph while ink is running down the shower drain. You're like, what is happening here? It's 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 still such a great shot, though. Oh, absolutely. It's a phenomenal shot. But then he then in the same Dracula get up and everything starts stalking a um, a prostitute who he had actually tried to proposition like the night before. And she rebuffed him. So he starts stalking her as Dracula, and this is when we also notice this, that uh, instead of like a Bella Lugosi clip, mm-hmm. Dracula, do you remember who pulled up for the Dracula clip? It was Christopher Lee, wasn't it? Yeah, which it's like, okay, not quite with the Bella Lugosi there, but rights are rights. But this is an, uh, multiple instances here where Eric Benford is kind of a adjacent killer because mm-hmm. te- he doesn't technically kill – the prostitute in this because she falls and stakes herself. Um, now, of course, he was chasing her. Had she not been chased, that wouldn't have happened. But there's multiple scenes like that where he's just kind of in the area and those things just happen. Uh, did that well, take- for the for the first for the first couple? I mean, when when he does find you know the prostitute with the uh, the fence through her neck, he decides that he's going to then bite her in the neck yeah. and suck her blood. So even if he didn't technically kill her, he's laying his his hands all over the corpse and then sucking her blood. So yeah, he's, Oh, he's totally complicit. I am not like, this isn't the, uh, Eric Benford apology hour. It is the, uh, <laughs> it's the da- damn it, Eric, you know, I identified with you initially and now you're killing me here. No, it's that one. Uh, and in the initial wheelchair scene is the one that also triggers the white heat references with James Cagney. See, and which again, being older when I saw this, I had actually seen a few James Cagney films through some film classes I took in college. Now, had I watched this film, I think, when I was in the slasher boom of the 80s, when I'm watching all the slasher ripoffs, all the Friday the 13th, I have a feeling I would have probably been bored by this back in the day. <laughs> and that's not a knock on the film, but I just think, again, aesthetically speaking, it's, it is a slower character piece. Yes, yes. It definitely works at its at its own pacing. Um, sometimes you, you could argue to the detriment of itself, but it, it creates such a unique flavor, especially when we're comparing everything in the, in the 80s. You, you had to be different at a certain point to stand out. Mm-hmm. And since Fade to Black was, you know, so different even at the early onset, that it definitely, that, that allows it to kind of coast throughout that period. Is, is it, it's already in your mind. It's already different. It doesn't have to stand up to everything else everything else kind of has to stand up to it because of the way that it's doing it. And and that's not to say that this film was, you know, a huge groundbreaking, you know, movie that has a giant swell. This is still very much a cult film that that's finding its legs. And because it's not out on Blu-ray and it's not available for rent, that, that makes it harder to do so. But while watching the movie, what kind of struck me and stuck in my mind is that there was another film that I was thinking of, even though it doesn't have that tenuous, um, well, I guess technically in a way it does have an obsessed with movies, just not on the same line, is that this film kind of goes the way of American Psycho, where it definitely starts out in in reality. And as it continues to go on, things start getting crazier and crazier. So you're not exactly sure what's 100 percent real and and what's, you know, the the imagination or hallucinations or some some craziness taking hold. Yeah, and this thankfully this doesn't necessarily take the whole unreliable narrator aspect, which is good. Mm-hmm. 
because you do really you you pretty much travel along with him as he starts to unfold more and more. Here's my question for you: Did this film predict film Twitter? I see that that's an that's an evil and almost terrible thing to ask, and, and that's because I think that the nomenclature for for film Twitter is supposed to represent something that when people say film Twitter, it doesn't that I think film Twitter, when you say it, it's supposed to be inclusive of, you know, people who, who, who like uh, films who want to talk about films and stuff. But there's too many times when people say hashtag film Twitter, that it ends up becoming a negative thing. And it's, it's signaling or calling out um, the worst people for that. You know, the people who, who want to attack other people, who, the people who want to uh, push forward the gatekeeping, the people who who want to say, oh, your opinion's not valid on this or you're not a true film fan because you haven't seen this movie because you're not this age, a- any of that stuff. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say that because I do think that the, the major detriment to this film is having Eric Benford be so so kind of far removed in, in his attitude to give people who, who do love film a bad a bad name in a way let me rephrase the question does it <laughs> represent the worst of film twitter because sure, sure. I, I i definitely can see that especially when it comes to to his interactions with um with mickey rourke in those couple scenes i mean we're not going to say that mickey rourke is great himself but that setup in the way that it unfolds i definitely think is a, a film film twitter diatribe in a way yeah, it was just horrible. It was just every time he was disgusted with someone, he would just start spouting out this nonsensical movie references and knowledge, which, again, I'm always impressed with. But at the same time, you're just like, no, you're you're really just digging that hole deeper and deeper. But it just felt like just someone as an, 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 the nomenclature of the time swooping into your to your your mentions or what have you and just start attacking you. And you're like, I don't even know who you are. Mm hmm. Can you at least give me some context here? But it was just because every time he would just throw out these references to pump, pump himself up almost. Again, you know, steam issues notwithstanding. So like I said, yeah. it's like every time that happened, I'm like, oh, Eric, what are you doing? Just stop it. And that whole interaction with him and Mickey Rourke. And again, this is <laughs> 1980. They threw out the R word pretty, pretty casually there. Uh, but even the fact that you've got like this masculine guy in mickey rourke versus the more you know spindly guy but they're both film fans uh different um you know aspects of it i guess it's just it's a weird weird film because it does pose some questions i mean it even goes into um you know is media and violence on the big screen affecting the youth of the day and it's it's addressed in this film and maybe i don't i don't want to take away from a segment but this might be the best time to say uh happy birthday to what I think makes this film so memorable and quirky <laughs> and wonderful. Uh, but we've almost, you know, half an hour in to fade to black. We have not talked about birthday boy, Tim Thomerson in this. I was just about to, I was just about to bring him up. That was going to be my next, my next piece when we were talking about the violence and, and the, the other side of the coin. So, but yeah, we have to mention Tim Thomerson because he is both insane uh, and completely enjoyable in this film. I was not expecting that aspect of the movie to, to show up. I'm in, um, I mean, from the having the psychological evaluator, you know, um, I, I, I can understand that where they go with it. That's, that's different. Uh, maybe I'm and looking back in the, in the early eighties, late seventies, when he was a stand up comedian, I have no doubt that, 
there's one scene in this movie. You want to talk about scenes. If I want to show them kind of a, to give them no context to fade to black, but to have them watch a scene, there's a scene in this movie where, and again, he's a the social worker. He's a Dr. Moriarty, Dr. Moriarty, Moriarty, ladies and gentlemen, is in the basement of a police precinct in his little office area. Which is a jail cell. We have to point that out. Absolutely. He is doing coke, playing the harmonica, all within this like small little time frame. And it looks like one of those, like, I'm not even sure if like he knew they were filming at that point or if maybe they just saw him doing that. They're like, oh, let's just throw that in the film because it adds the charm factor for me. It's one of those moments where I'm like, oh, this makes me love the movie even more. And you reacted. I heard you, you know, again, we weren't in the same room, but you, I could hear you just like, what? What? Because I was trying to figure it out. I mean, it's, it's interesting that in a movie like this, that the comic relief character is your your psychological detective. <laughs> you know, that the, the behavioral scientist is is the one that the humor's coming from because he's he's doing coke. He's pumping himself up and playing the harmonica. Um, he then has a scene when he's bedded the other, um, police officer that like, he comes out from under the covers with the, uh, it's a, is it a beer can or a wine bottle? And then like a box of crackers in the other hand, weird foreplay with Tim Thomerson and Dr. Moriarty there again, I'm sure improvised and brought from home, but the literal line, and I don't want to be uh too, too crass here is, but uh, I believe it is. I've never fucked a cop before. <laughs> it's the way he delivers it too and they immediately cut after that as well it's just the first time i saw it i did i snorted i laughed aloud i probably uh you know woke lola up from a deep sleep at the bottom of my bed because it was just like where did that come from but it does add the levity you need in the film because binford is just so serious and you know the psychosis starts getting worse and worse so you need tim thomerson in there uh to be that that voice of reason because he's the one ultimately that is like, no, we need to talk to the kid. We, you know, he's got a lot of stuff going on, which as we find out, there is some, does this go like full house Lannister? Because Uh, in terms of the, the origin of where we think it was initially his aunt, it turns out it was his mother. And we get that hint initially where she's talking about giving him the back. She's going to, he's going to give her a back rub and all that kind of stuff. And it's, well, I mean that that could just be weird. From I I don't know if there was anything beyond that, or it just being creeped out because it's a family member in general. I mean, it comes down to more of like why she came up with the the story mm-hmm. for that. You know, um, I mean, she doesn't know who the dad really is and doesn't seem uh, to care, but but she's got the whole backstory where she's talking about her early life and then also references his mom. But so it's why he why she presented it that way. I'm I'm not entirely sure. Um, but it, I, it it doesn't matter. It, it's just going to the breakdown of uh, the position that he's in, and and that he's that it's not just that he's somebody who's obsessed with movies. That he's somebody who's had this this hard life, and that he's stuck with this individual who he doesn't think is you know one of his actual parents. So it's causing him to rebel in a different way, and so he's he's closing himself off. Because he doesn't view himself as having this normal life, so he retreats into the the movies. And you've got Tim Thomerson who's talking about the fact that, oh, you know, I think that it's you know the movies that influence him. I think there's too much violence on TV. But while he's having that discussion, what's actually on TV 
is the news itself mm-hmm. that it's the news that's propagating and pushing forward, you know, the, the, the car crash or the sniper killing that, that happened recently. Like I said, this film is kind of earnest in terms of the message that it's trying to at least talk about and address. Now, mm-hmm. how it executes it can definitely be up for discussion. But in 19, like I said, this is before the boom of all the crazy slashers. Um, I think this one would fit nicely in with something like a Silence of the Lambs, something that you could probably show a normie for the most part. Um, I, I mean that in a good way, uh, just because I think it's a little bit more accessible. But it does have those weird elements and even some of the kills where it's going to appeal to the horror fan. Now, I'm, I can definitely see where this one isn't for everyone. Uh, I can definitely see some people that'll be like, nah, it's just, it's not my, it, maybe too slow potentially. Although I like the more drawn out character pieces for the most part. Uh, how would, how did the pacing work for you for a first time view? I mean, it worked, it worked fine with me. I didn't really have any, any problem with it at all. It, it, it flows nicely. I mean, you're kind of thrown for a loop when it comes for some of the tonal changes, but it's never really a negative to the film. Like there's lots of times when a movie doesn't really know what, what tone it is that it can throw you off and it can put you at, at arm's length. Whereas I think the tonal shifts in this one kind of work because he is, you know, shifting between movies. And if he's shifting between movies and genres, then the film kind of needs to reflect that in a way. Um, and I think that leads to what would be one of what I would say would be the signature moment that stuck with me is when he does go full hop along Cassidy <laughs> and he's got the face mask that he's wearing and everything. And he's the one who's got the actual gun uh, and and he's shooting, but they keep on framing him with the fog in the alleyway and that he's got the black silhouette and like just how that feels. It's like, this is 100% definitely horror iconography of the way he's standing there and this menacing force and the fog and just the way it's shot. And so like having it, it jump from that to, you know, a couple scenes later, it, it's jokey when he breaks into the barber shop. you know, you can have those uh, dissonant tones. I that that alleyway scene is fantastic the way it's shot like you said it looks it looks he looks menacing in that in that area and it's really funny because if you think technically I, I joke the master of disguise but that fake mask <laughs> he's wearing for hot, that is frightening that is well, and the the fact that he just has it at home yeah. too well I'm and this is kind of jo- all jokes aside but where does he get his arm in it? you know where does he get those wonderful toys because he's got as old, you know, old West six shooter, he shows mm-hmm. up with a Tommy gun to go full Cagney. Where is he getting? Is it, was he left? That, a lot that's funny. No, that like, those are the two questions I have in the film is about the Tommy gun. And then, uh, the, the six shooter. And so I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's plenty of it. He could kill other people that we don't know about is, is what there's a chance is, but like, when it comes to like the outfits and stuff, I think he's making it himself. I think he's somebody who uh, was somebody who subscribed to, you know, Fangoria or yep. um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Famous Monsters of, of, uh, oh God, why am I forgetting the, the end of Hollywood. it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. Filmland. He's, he's a, a Filmland. He's yeah. a total but, boy. Yeah. So, so he's, he's somebody who would definitely be looking at that stuff and would be reading the articles and would be finding out ways that he could recreate it. So, I definitely think the costume aspect is is something that he's doing. Where some of the crazier elements, I don't I don't fully know. Um, but that does lead to the fourth question we have, which I think for this one 
is is going to be difficult and has been the la- the for the last like three four weeks has been the the most difficult question to ask. But can you think of any contemporary, uh, modern, recent films um, that that would feel in step or like Fade to Black? This one was a tougher one for me um, because just in terms of what I ultimately went for is uh, knowledge of film and how that okay. can apply in a movie world setting. Um, and the one that I came across is one I saw on Shutter, so I'll give a little Shutter shout out. Is it's very meta, but it's called You Might Be the Killer. Oh, okay. I know that one. I've seen that one with uh, Allison Hannigan and yep. Franz Kranz. Yes, yeah, the the, the Whedon players, if you will. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and ultimately, anytime you throw in a, a movie nerd in your film, uh, whether it's a Randy back in the day, uh, whether in this case it's Allison Hannigan's character, those are kind of your surrogate for the most part. Uh, you're like, oh, I, I, I'm probably that character if my life is a movie. So, <laughs> you know, for the most part, like I said, that's why I was initially on Benford's side and then, you know, got turned, you know, um, and I've got some other recos to go into. But, yeah, no, this one for me, I think, because it's it's fun. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't know if it would play. You know what? I think it would play as a good double bill because uh, the ending of Fade to Black is is not happy. So you need something no, fun. No. So I think if you went Fade to Black and then you might be the killer, I think you would uh, a killer double feature. But I think you'd have one where, you know, film knowledge is the key to uh, getting through a film or something along those lines. Now, I, I haven't seen it because I keep on holding off on uh, on purchasing it because there's always something else that's on Vinegar Syndrome that pulls me first. But um, from what I know, isn't uh, don't go or there's, there's something out in the woods or is that what I'm thinking of where like the one of the main characters is somebody who works at a video store and he's trying to tell everybody that they're they're in basically like a horror movie situation. I'm not familiar with it, but I'm not surprised. Uh, now, now I feel like I have to check it out. But yeah, I mean, there's, it, I don't think that there's really uh, any film that kind of follows the way that this one does, with the main character being being that um, obsessed with it. That it's always kind of tied into something else where they're not actually the like the killer itself, with them being the focus. Because I mean, you have something like Scream, uh, where you know, and various versions of the series you've got people who are obsessed with films and who are the bad guys who are like no we know how this plays out that's why we're having to do these several things but they're not the leads of the movie yeah, which is kind of refreshing for the most part um like i said that was the toughest one to kind of put together just because of the, all the really weird disparate elements of fade to black but also then how they kind of work together for the most part as well that's and that's why i think this film is one that we're still talking about because it just is so quirky and weird and kind of of its time for the most part, but not really. Yes. Yes. I completely, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Uh, the film is, there's nothing out there. Um, and that's the one that, that has a character who's trying to warn everybody that they're basically in a horror movie type situation. Right. Um, I don't know if they're the lead or not, and I don't think it goes as far as this. But, I mean, that's been an interesting thing for some of these movies that, that we've been covering, um, you know, whether they're a film that's 10 years old, that they're 20 years old, that's 40 years old, that for some of these films that people have been choosing, it's hard to kind of find um, a, a more modern or recent film that kind of does that thing. And so that's what I think definitely does help, you know, keep the longevity um, for these movies. And that brings us, of course, to the final question. Uh, which is 
it's kind of a vote in a way i've had people mention to me that you're basically just having people vote and i'm like well yeah but (laughs) trying to jazz up the way that we're saying it um but having seen the movie again do you think that it's still um worthy of the reverence that people hold towards it 40 years after it came out or do you think that you know slowly uh, that that limelight is is fading away and and the luster is slowly being you know wiped off I think because it is a harder one to find that there is some allure to that uh, makes it a little bit more mysterious. Uh, So people will continue to seek it out because I think it is worthy of your time. It's a film 40, 40 years ago. They made a movie that kind of predicted interactions online, negative interactions online, uh, the, the obsession of film Um, again, talking about, you know, violence in the media and its effects. Uh, we see that in video games, music and all art in you know, art in itself is always, you know, on trial. And, but this film does it in a, in a quirky way. It makes you laugh. So I think ultimately it's those little quirks that make this film worth investing your time in. So, and it is an investment, but if you, I, <laughs> I do think it's one of those that is well worth it because it's going to appeal to a certain sort of horror fan and like I said, it, it's, if you enjoy movies, if you enjoy talking and quotes with your buddies, you'll probably find something to like in this film. I think the best thing that says is that it's always a good idea to try to make as original movie as you can you can make. You can easily describe it with somebody saying like, oh, it's like this and it's like this. But but you want to blaze your own trail. You want to make as an original uh, movie th- that you can. And you don't want to be beholden to the success of this film or that film. Because if you do you know, focus on making the movie that you want to make and how original it is, that there's a good chance that you'll end up being something that's able to stand out or stand the test of time because there isn't a lot that's directly uh, on the same wavelength. And if there is, then it's, you know, very few things. Yeah, no, I, that's well said. I <laughs> it's, uh, there's no much more of a capper on that. It's like I said, it's oddly prescient uh, for a horror film. Yes. Now the question that I've been finishing by asking everybody is, are there three films that you would like to suggest for people to see since people are at home? There's a chance that, you know, theaters aren't going to be open for another couple months that everybody's trying to find something new They're They're trying to find something, you know, that people are suggesting something to latch onto because they have the time they can see things that are available. So what are some three, what are three movies? They don't have to be new. They can, if you want, but they can be from any time period that you definitely think that people should take this time uh, to watch. So ultimately, what I'm going to put together here is a horror-thon for films, including Fade to Black, that Eric Benford would die for. Uh, We're going to go ahead and start everything off with Fade to Black, because that's the the earliest film I have, 1980. We're then going to go into why uh, sweater vests are still considered scary in Fade to Black and 976 Evil, which is all about the corruption of the youth through, in this case, a... um, a phone horror scope. It's just, it's phenomenal. If you haven't seen it, Stephen Jeffries <laughs> is beyond wonderful. Uh, we are then going to go a little bit more meta and again, film crazy with John Waters, Cecil B. Demented. Okay. <laughs> and we're going to finish everything off with a meta masterpiece. And again, it's all about film knowledge, but behind the mask, the rise of Leslie Vernon. I'm for it. That, that is a very, very weird lineup. Um, but I'm for it. That That's a crazy <laughs> interesting time and i think some choices that most people normally wouldn't uh think of now because i have you here and we mentioned it earlier in the episode 
um, and we're at that point that movies are starting to hit. Uh, are, can you think of one to two movies that you really liked at Panic Fest that people should try to um, to to seek and find out? Because I know that that lots of the films that were at Panic Fest are starting to hit VOD now, as opposed to having a short run in theaters. Absolutely. Um, one I would definitely seek out is Swallow. It is, I would argue it as a horror film, and again, it's one that many would argue maybe against it being horror, but uh, I I also saw Color Out of Space. I squirmed a lot in Color Out of Space. (laughs) I may have squirmed more during Swallow than Color Out of Space. um, It's an incredibly moving film. It's a film that's all about control and power. Uh, It would play well with The Invisible Man. Um, and then another one that I haven't seen, but I'm going to be seeing it this weekend and who knows whenever this, um, airs, but I'm going to be renting porno. (laughs) Uh, I got my copy of Fangoria and spoiler alert. I know the big reveal. You, you now understand why I mentioned and, and was uh, complaining to Tim asking him why, uh, the main theme that was emerging for panic fest 2020, um, was genital mutilation. Well, if you're going to be known for something, at least be known for something. Because there were, I think there were, there were four or five movies at Panic Fest this year that that all had a genital mutilation scene. <laughs> again, why it's ranked one of the best genre film festivals in the nation. And there you go. Again, memories are always made there, and <laughs> with through genital mutate mutilation, through weird live podcasts, through me running around and being a jerk to everyone, it's a uh, something for everyone. Exactly, exactly. Now, Greg, can you let everybody know where they can find you out on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We are a white guy with a beard, so I have multiple podcasts. Uh, Nerds of Nostalgia, we're on Twitter at NonPodcast. We're on Facebook at Nerds of Nostalgia. And Nightmare Junkhead, that is our weekly horror podcast. Uh, We're on Twitter at Nightmare Junk and on Facebook at Nightmare Junkhead. That's... That that's perfect enough. That that really really works out. And and I mean he he wears many hats. So if you're somebody who's in the Kansas City area, once we get the theaters open back up, if you're going to a horror movie at Screenland Armor, or if you're seeing one of many films at the Alamo Draft House in Kansas City, there's a good chance that you will probably see either Greg there viewing a film or hosting the film. And so it's a a great time. You can easily find me um, on Twitter at Yo Adrian Torres. Uh, the Twitter handle for the show is at Horrorversary, just like it sounds, because we like to keep it simple. But I really want to thank you for coming on, man. This was great. Thank you, first of all, for showing me the movie and then and then taking time out of while everything's going on and, and discussing this film. Of course, man. And, you know, we always talk about the communal experience. And that was the first kind of, uh, I guess, Internet experience that I had like that. And it was very <laughs> memorable. So I'm glad, you know what, I'm. it wouldn't have happened if you wouldn't have come up, you know, how many years ago. And introduced yourself, man. And I not to get all sappy and sentimental, but it's it's harder to make friends when you're older. And I can legitimately say you are a true friend, man. So I am more than happy to come on your podcast, but I'm just more than happy to be in your life, my friend. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate it very much. You will get a giant hug once we are able to go out <laughs> into the world and can be closer than six feet. The next Tuesday, man. I can't wait. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Right, well, right. until next time, everyone. Please stay safe, be well, and be nice to each other.